In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Beautiful to see you up here, up, up out there. There you go. If I seem a little nervous this morning, it's because I have a couple of very smart and very impressive friends who have come to the cathedral this morning to hear me preach. And um, so I've been working really hard to write this life-altering, shatteringly, shatteringly profound and original sermon, which of course is the perfect recipe for a perfectly ordinary sermon. So adjust your expectations accordingly. First, a bit of news, um, which is that yesterday in Kempton Hall, we held our first contemplative mini-retreat since the pandemic closed us down 19 months ago. And it was wonderful to see everybody there, to be back together in that space. And for those of you who don't know, our contemplative mini-retreats are our once-a-month gatherings where we invite a local spiritual teacher to talk to us about spiritual practice, and to meditate or pray with us. And I have to say, the energy in that room yesterday was mwah, gorgeous. For an icebreaker, I asked the group to talk a little bit about why they had come that morning. And one person said, for those of us who have been traumatized by church, meditating in church just feels a little safer. I loved that comment and the courage it took to say that out loud. It does me a lot of good to know that we have these places at Trinity where those of us who have been wounded by church can feel safe. That is a precious and rare thing. And it raises the question for me, you know, who has not at some point been wounded by church, you know? because I think probably all of us have been at one time or another. We all know what it's like to be an outsider looking in, to feel those middle school feelings of not being cool enough or popular enough or being surrounded by people that seem to have a lot more friends than we do. And so we end up spending our time staring at bulletin boards and wondering if anyone will talk to us. Maybe it's true, as Jesus said, that whenever two or three are gathered together in his name, he is among them. But I think it's equally true that, you know, whenever 20 or 30 are gathered together in his name, at least 15 or 20 are wondering if they really belong there. And let's be honest, Trinity's no exception, especially when we gather in large groups like this on Sunday mornings. It can feel completely intimidating and weird to walk through those big red doors, just trying to figure out when to stand and when to sit and what's with all the bowing and the kneeling. I mean, it's impossible not to feel like everyone's staring at you. And of course, the truth is, no one cares, <laughs> really. We're all pretty much faking it up here. The trick is just to look like you know what you're doing. That's all it is. And thank God there's so much variety in our tradition that you know, when you end up doing whatever you want to do in the worship service and you feel like maybe it wasn't right, you can always just make something up. You can just say, 
Just remember this line, I'm following the 8th century Merovingian rite of Catholic hypostasis. <laughs> Seriously, we'll believe you, and then we'll probably start copying you. So it's okay. Anyway, church trauma. Oof. I'm off on a rant about church trauma because I've been wondering what kind of trauma the author of Mark's gospel must have suffered because of all the gospels, it's Mark's gospel that goes the most out of its way to portray the male disciples as dull and quarrelsome and feckless. It's almost like he's trying to settle an old score or something. For example, in this section in Mark's gospel that we've been reading for the last few weeks, Jesus speaks very plainly three times about the betrayal that's waiting for him in Jerusalem, about his death on the cross, and three times in a row, the male disciples completely miss the point. It's almost like Mark is making fun of them. And then when they actually do get to Jerusalem and Jesus needs them the most, when he's being arrested and tortured and killed in Mark's gospel, the male disciples are nowhere to be found. They've entirely disappeared. Despite all his teaching about the cross, they're not there to help Jesus carry it. That job falls to an outsider named Simon of Cyrene. And as Jesus is nailed to the cross and dies, it's the female disciples who stand witness at the foot of the cross. Those very same women, Mark makes a point of saying, who actually supported Jesus from the very beginning. And it's another outsider, Joseph of Arimathea, who takes Jesus' body down and buries it. The people who claimed to be closest to Jesus were the ones who abandoned him at those crucial moments. Which really makes you wonder, is Mark getting even by telling this story this way? Is he settling an old score? Or maybe they are merely foils written in this way to illustrate that, you know what, all of us, even the fire-breathing heroes of the faith, all of us were beginners once. And if we have any spiritual wisdom in us at all, we remain beginners. We keep our beginner's mind because we have all slipped and fallen along that very steep learning curve of figuring it out. Maybe of all the people who need to be turned into object lessons, the male disciples are the best ones to illustrate how counterintuitive this walk with Jesus really is. Maybe. Maybe the dim-witted disciples are there to help us gain perspective on our own dim-wittedness, maybe. In our Gospel reading this morning, the first clue we get that James and John are about to become object lessons in stupidity comes at the very beginning. It says that they come to Jesus and they say to him, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. We can just see Jesus walking along with his disciples and he hears this thing come out of the mouths of James and John and he just stops in his tracks and he just savors for a moment the breathtaking, embarrassing breach of etiquette. Jesus is like, hold on, let me just take this in for a second. 
Here are my disciples, my students, who call me master and rabbi. And even just a few minutes ago, confessed that I am the Messiah. Here are my students asking me to do whatever they ask. Huh. And then I just imagine Jesus chuckling to himself, reminding himself of his own teaching. Actually, he thinks, this is great. All this time I've been telling them the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And if you want to be master of all, you must be servant of all. So I guess I can't blame them for treating me like their personal servant, I guess. So he says, okay, fine, fire away. What do you want me to do for you? And they say, when you come into your kingdom and you're presiding over your heavenly banquet in all of your glory, we want to be seated at the highest places of honor. Now, of all the dumb requests that two guys can make of Jesus, this has got to be one of the world's dumbest. It's like saying in complete seriousness, Mommy, when I grow up, I want to be the world champion of humility. Yeah. <laughs> About a hundred years ago, when I was just a deacon, just a deacon, when I was a deacon, I met a young man who had this burning passion for all things related to church. He was an extremely pious and serious and ambitious young man. One day I asked him if he had any interest in becoming a priest, and he said, well, only if I know for certain that I would end up as presiding bishop. I told him that was probably the worst possible answer you could give to that question. And he said, yeah, I should probably come up with a better one. <laughs> I'm happy to report he never did become a priest. He is now, and this is true, he is now the executive director of a national support group for rich people. James and John are shameless in their ambition, which is why they're such useful foils for Jesus' teaching. Jesus, when you come into the kingdom, we want to sit your left hand and your right hand. We want to be your consigliaries, your CEO and CFO, and you don't know what you're asking. If Jesus were a military recruiter, every young man who came to him asking to join the Marine Corps, would have to sit down and watch a nine-hour video on battlefield casualties. But this does not deter James and John. Yes, they say with bracing confidence, we are ready to die for you. Until, of course, they're not. Nobody knows, actually, whatever happened to James and John. Um, <laughs> Legend has it that they became martyrs for the faith, but those stories are based on unreliable sources from the fourth century. Maybe they went back to Galilee and started up a support group for rich people. Who knows, but thanks to Mark's gospel, they live on today as examples of how not to be a disciple of Jesus. And the second we start thinking we're better than them, we become them, right?
Jesus did not walk into Jerusalem to be mocked and spat upon and flogged and killed because he was so impressed by his disciples' mastery of esoteric sciences or because they knew the precise wording of the Athanasian Creed or because they could speak with authority about the difference between transubstantiation and consubstantiation. He was under no illusions about whom he was dying for. They had failed every test he gave them, just as he knew they would. And they had done everything they could to earn their reputations as happy idiots. So that when the dawn finally broke over their marble heads and they witnessed the true depths of his love for them, they could finally get the message, which is that they were loved exactly as they were, and that this love is stronger than death, and that this love for us only increases as we slip and fall along the learning curve. That this love is sufficient, even for a humble preacher of modest gifts who can come up with no more profound and original ending for a sermon than Jesus loves you. <laughs> Amen.